following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. If you can believe it, we are nearing the end of our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is one of the most, one of the most, how do I say this? One of the most oldest, that doesn't sound right. Uh, It's perhaps the oldest profession of faith that the church has used throughout the centuries. It has been sort of a a pillar of orthodoxy from the time uh, that it was circulating in 300 AD or so up until the present era. And we are, are coming to what could be argued as the most, three most profound words that have ever been spoken uh, in history. That is in the line that I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Um, Now the thing is that as we say this, even as I say this right now, the statement doesn't always carry the gravitas that it's meant to to hold. It doesn't doesn't have this weighty, hit that, that, that it's meant to carry with us. Somehow, the words can roll off the tip of our tongues, um, and, and there's no joyful exclamation that follows it. I don't know how, and, and I'm guilty of it too, and you'd think that, that maybe if we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, if we actually understood it, that there would be some sort of resounding hallelujah, that, that just every time it's said that there would be an amen that's proclaimed or a praise God, but nobody said praise God yet, so... You can see what I'm saying. Uh, and I can hear your internal pushback as I'm saying this stuff. You know, it's like most of us are, are pretty light-skinned folks. Uh, we, as white people, tend to be more reserved and don't interact with a public speaker as some other cultures might. You might be saying, you know, Pastor Sam, this, this church stuff is serious business, right? We're supposed to be somber and, and dignified, but if you look at how uh, David, King David, responded to God and his message of forgiveness, man, he was crazy. He he responded in a very undignified and celebratory way. Just couldn't believe that the words were true. And I'm saying this just to show that given our response to this this statement that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, it probably means that that we don't understand how serious, how how heavy of a claim this actually is. And and I think that if we were really to think about it, there there are probably two main reasons for this. Um, Two main reasons why we hear this statement and we don't respond in a way that that might seem more fitting. And, And I think the first reason is out of familiarity. For those of us who have been around the church for a long time, those who have been catechized, those who know the scriptures, those who are part of the the continual narrative of liturgy as it goes on week in and week out, that we know that we are forgiven. We we know that God is gracious and he's a forgiving God. And and what happens is this becomes common language, that we start to hear it so frequently that we forget this this sort of repetitive nature. And so it feels like a given. Of course we're forgiven. Of course God forgives us. And so what happens is if we don't interact with that in the way and give it the due diligence and give it the weightiness that it deserves, we become presumptuous upon God's grace. We become ungrateful. And so we don't respond as we ought to. And the other reason I think is Maybe on the other side, that's maybe like a religious response or a religious reason why we don't respond to this as the way we ought to. And the second side is, is because 
we maybe don't see how it's relevant. Right? Forgiveness of sins? What? Like, what's, the, what's that? Why, why do I need I, I'm a I'm a pretty decent person. Sure, I make mistakes. I, I just, it takes me back to this interview that I heard um, at the last election cycle. One of the candidates, I'm not going to point fingers, but, but he was asked about, you know, do, do you need to ask God for forgiveness? Do you, do you need forgiveness? He's like, no, I don't need forgiveness. I, I've done good things my whole life. And, and I think that there, there's a way that, that that's not a unique thought within our culture. That's not a unique thought where it's like, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I know, I know I'm not the best person, but I'm definitely not the worst person. We've kind of created the subjective sliding scale of what it means to be good. And so there's a sense where both religion and irreligion can keep us from rightly appreciating this, this statement that there's forgiveness for sins. And what I'd like to put before you this morning is that a lackluster response to the forgiveness of sins is an indication that we don't understand the gospel or, or the gospel isn't resonating with us as it ought to. Because when you think of it, to say I believe in the forgiveness of sins is really the gospel message in a nutshell. And if you're missing out on this gospel message, you're, you're missing out on the best news. And what I wanna do today, I wanna leave you with some good news. And we, we live in a, a world where there's just a lot of bad news. There's a lot of bad things happening. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry, a lot of frustration, a lot of brokenness. And it, it makes it, honestly, it makes it hard to function. Right? And you know this, if you're going through something and, and you're experiencing turmoil, it's hard to sleep at night. There, there's that bad news, there's something that's plaguing my mind that's causing this worry. And so I wanna, I wanna leave you with some good news that's gonna help you sleep better. I, I wanna leave you with some good news that's going to allow you to live life to its fullest. And to do this, it's really simple. We, we, we gotta break down what is sin and what is forgiveness because you cannot understand forgiveness without first understanding what sin is. And so we're gonna start there. What is sin? Now, I, I gotta warn you that sin probably isn't what you think it is. It's not because the idea of sin is unfamiliar or it's irrelevant, that we don't interact with it in our, our lives. That's not the case. That sin is present in all of our lives and it's deeply personal. It makes itself known. But, but the reason why sin probably isn't what you think it is is because it is used in a way or communicated or, or maybe even twisted in a way that isn't consistent with the Bible's description of it. So we see this within our culture where sin is used as a marketing tool. Sin is used in a way to, to, to play on your desires and your wants to get you to buy something or to do something that you may or may not need. Um, sin, it's got this mentality, and you see it with, with bakeries, sinfully delicious, or you see this even in how like uh, car commercials, sex appeal is used, like trying to tempt you to, to do something. So sin is used as a, a marketing tool, and so it's this idea that sin is doing something a little naughty, giving, giving way to something that you know is just like a little bit naughty to make you feel good or to make you happy. And we carry with it this mantra, I, I know I shouldn't, but I just can't help myself. Yeah, I know I shouldn't, but, but what's it really, I know I shouldn't eat this, I know I shouldn't look at this, I know I shouldn't take that. 
but I just can't resist. Who's it gonna hurt? And that's, that's the, the way that culture downplays sin. It says it's this harmless indulgence of your own carnal appetites. You know, and really, who does it hurt? It's not, not really that big of a deal. Just kind of roll with it. Don't get too worked up about it. But the danger in this is that culture plays with sin like it is a kitten, but scripture says sin is a devouring lion. It might seem harmless and fun, but eventually sin will dominate you. Sin will overtake you. It will consume you. And in the name of freedom, which our culture, the, the idea of freedom is, is a, a, a life without any restraints. It's a life living by our own rules, by our own narratives, by our own ideas. This idea that freedom is no restraints at all, but in this pursuit of freedom and, and, and craving and chasing what we want, we become enslaved. That's the paradox of sin. It says, I'll give you freedom, but really it just traps you more. And when you're trapped by sin, it runs your life. It dominates you. And what you'll find is that you are actually powerless. That when sin is active and present and really uh, visibly and just interjects itself in your life, you become powerless to do anything against it. Now, Scripture tells us that this is how sin operates. It's by, by the way of deception. It says one thing and delivers another. It, it, it says here, I, I can give you what you want apart from God. And as soon as you grab it, the rug gets pulled out from under you. That the promises are empty. And as, as we give ourselves to sin more and more, it only makes us miserable. It makes us vulnerable and leaves us scared. Perfect example of this is in, in the Garden of Eden, uh, really at, at the beginning of sin, when sin entered into humanity. Uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything is great. It's beautiful. It's blissful. They've got shalom, this wholeness, this peace. And Satan comes into the garden as a, as a serpent to tempt them. And, and the, the line that he uses, he says, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Now the reality is, that Adam and Eve were already created in the likeness and image of God. They were already, in a sense, more than any other creature in creation, they were like God in his likeness and his image. And so Satan takes this and he, he twists this and what happens when they eat the fruit, that whole idea is broken. The good that they experience of being created in the likeness of an image, the cool walks in the day with God and the, the relational harmony that they experience between one another, the joy of living in an extravagant and abundant garden, all of that was taken right out from underneath of them and proves that sin only makes empty promises. They found themselves broken, ashamed, in conflict with each other and with God, and so sin always tells us, you'll be happy. Do this and you'll be happy. Right? Believe this, act on this, you'll be fulfilled. You'll be taken care of. But really, no. This is what Paul is talking about at the beginning of Romans chapter one when he says the unrighteous suppress truth. See, sin works in a way that, that makes us 
dull in the mind. It darkens our heart. We become fools and we get duped into this false narrative. It detaches us from reality and places us in a cruel, false reality. It twists our heart into rejecting what is good and embracing what is bad, and thus our hands start doing what is bad. We start sinning. Now, when we talk about sin, typically, the main thing that we think about are are, our actions, Right, what, what I do, what I've said, as if sin is some visible and observable manifestation. Right, we visibly break God's moral standards by doing things he prohibits or not doing the things he commands. We violate this standard of righteousness and of, of virtue Now that's true, we do act out in sin. There are visible evidences of where sin is. Like we steal, we lie, we exploit, we say and do bad things, but that just scratches the surface of what sin is. Now in Jesus' time, there were people who were really good at making it look like they didn't have anything to do with sin. There are people who lived by the standards, operated within this game plan in some sense from a visible perspective, but inside that they were actually quite corrupt. In fact, Jesus, as he went throughout his ministry, he was interacting with drunkards and prostitutes and swindlers, people who were obsessed with visible sin, people that you could look at their life and say, oh yeah, that's clearly sin. Yet Jesus befriended those people. He he was criticized for being a friend of sinners. And while he was doing life with them and shoulder to shoulder interacting with them, Jesus not once condoned those sinful behaviors. In fact, he was trying to bring them to a more robust and full life. And when he was criticized by these religious people who who looked the part of righteous, Jesus actually turned the tables on these religious people and said that they were just as sinful as the swindlers and prostitutes. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he says to the Pharisees, woe to you, you wash the outside of the cup. See, you, you deal with the external appearances but you neglect the inside, which is full of corruption and greediness. See, the reality is that sin isn't just an external manifestation. Sin isn't just doing the wrong things or not doing the right things. Sin is something that is so deeply embedded within each and every one of us. In fact, sin is the universal heart defect. Every one of our hearts has been corrupted by sin in a way. And this is what Paul says in verse 23 of Romans chapter three. He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying that there's a universal soul defect. We have a soul sickness. And putting a Band-Aid isn't gonna fix this. And, he, and as he gets into it, he, what we see here, that sin isn't just this like thing that we did one time back in college 
we feel kind of guilty about now or something that we did before we came to Christ and now we don't live, like this is something that is embedded in us and still rears its ugly head regardless if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. We are all sinners. Now, when we forget this, as church people, when we forget this, we become prone to hypocrisy. See, oh yeah, I figured it out. I don't struggle with that sin anymore. We kind of turn up our nose at that person. This is a perfect example of pointing out the splinter in our brother's eye while ignoring the log in our own. And that's part of the reason why every week we come and as we gather, we, we practice liturgy together, which, which really the liturgy is, is meant to form us. It's to, to frame us up in the true reality. First we come in and we, we hear the call to worship, which is declaring the holiness of God. That God is like no other. He is high and lifted up. He is holy and perfect and right. Only God always does what is good, right, and perfect. That's the kind of God is. And when we see God for who he is, we are able to hold up a mirror and see ourselves that we have fallen short. There's something wrong with us. It's not just the people who are outside of the church who need forgiveness. We as the body of Christ, we need forgiveness from all of the missteps that we've made throughout the week. And while our sin might not be as flagrant as other people's, our sin is just as offensive to God. Now John Piper has this really helpful, it's kind of a long, I put it up, I think I got it on the screen for you, this quote, he's explaining what sin is. Because one of the things is we get like, what is sin? Oh, sin is doing something naughty. No, no, no. It's, it's way more than that. John Piper says, sin is the glory of God not honored. Did you revere God in his full glory this week? Like, uh, up until, you know, before even 10 o'clock this morning? It's the holiness of God not reverenced the greatness of God not admired. I don't know about you, but I find myself looking at the mirror to self-admire quite a bit. Not just in a physical sense, because I'm really not that handsome. But, but to look at, oh, look at, look at what I've done. Look at what I've put together in my life. How foolish of me to look at that when, when I've got the greatness of God before me. Sin is the power of God, not praised. That means when you get through a hardship and you feel like, man, I just, I made it. I'm glad that season's over. And you don't actually acknowledge the power that moved you out of that. Sin is the truth of God, not sought. Which is, so often we live in our own narratives. Sin is the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored. Sin is the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, 
the person of God not loved. See, when you frame sin up in that way, there's not a single person who can say, I've cleared every one of those things. There's not a single person who can even in one day of their life say, I have not violated any of those things. The reality is that we are all sinners, that we are all participating in sin, whether it's the visible sins or the sin that is running underneath, the heart issues. In other words, what sin is? Sin is insisting to do life our own way instead of the way that God intends. God wanted all of these things to happen. That, that's what he created us for. And, and as we live into that purpose, we actually get to experience the good life. We get to experience life to the fullness. Yet we refuse to adhere to the reality of God, to the reality of his power, to the reality of his mercy, to the reality of his presence. And so we live in outright rebellion against God. And wherever sin is, there are always consequences. Sin causes us to live this subhuman life where, where brokenness ripples throughout all of our existence where we experience that between God and us, this relationship between God and man is fractured. Adam and Eve were escorted out of the Garden of Eden. They couldn't, could no longer participate in those cool walks of the day with God. They found themselves to be naked and ashamed. There was this struggle with the inner man. I feel bad. Something doesn't feel right. There's something wrong with me. And then there's brokenness that's spread throughout creation, how the ground is cursed and, and childbearing. This culture that we live in is difficult to, to navigate. And then on top of it, the relational discord that we experience between one another. Sin brings brokenness. Or in other words, sin brings corruption. Sin is where goodness is eroded away and, and, and when sin runs its course and it goes to its fullest extent, what, what happens? The, the ultimate form of corruption is death. This is why we're told uh, in James chapter one, when, when sin is fully grown, it gives way to death. Or when Paul says in Romans chapter six, the wages of sin is death, that's corruption. That's the corruption of sin working itself out all the way. We weren't created to die. God, God intended for us to live forever, but sin cuts that off. It corrupts goodness and life, and in doing so, it empties us. It depletes us of life until there's nothing left. Not only do we die, but in, in the life that we live, joy eludes us. The feeling of safety and stability is hard to come by. It's, it's like trying to hold water in our hands. Everything just sort of goes right through the cracks. This is an epidemic. Like it, it doesn't stop. 
just keeps snowballing and compounding and gaining momentum until it robs humanity of everything that's good and just leaves us in a state of misery. That this is why sin is the reason why you feel like you don't measure up. Sin is the reason why you think there is something wrong with me. Sin is the reason why you're constantly trying to prove yourself. Sin is the reason why the power of sin is so strong. It's the reason why you feel stuck in the same place that you were last year. You feel like, man, I've been struggling with this for years and years, and I feel like nothing changes. Sin is the reason why you say, yeah, I've definitely done things wrong, and I feel so bad about it. You're crippled by guilt. Some of us have chronic guilt. Like the sense that, that, yeah, I feel guilt for the things that I've done wrong, but I also assume some sort of guilt for other things that aren't necessarily mine to own, but because of that, because sin doesn't care, sin will say, take it anyway, feel that way. Sin is the reason why relationships are hard, while parenting is difficult, while purity and chastity is elusive. Sin is the reason why you find work difficult and your coworkers annoying. Because when you get to the root of every single issue we face in this life, it's not a design defect. It's because sin has corrupted. It's because at the heart of every issue, you find sin. Now, depending on what your take is, there are a couple of things that you can do with this. Religion says to try harder knock it off. Try harder, put your nose down, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, heap up those good works, prove to to God and everybody else watching that you're not a loser. Try harder. And if you fail, keep trying. Fake it till you make it. That's religion. If you want to give yourself to living a life of religion and dealing with your sin within religion, good luck. It's, it's exhausting. You'll never get ahead. Because when you understand sin and the way that, that, that Piper laid it out, there's no way that you can heap up the good in a way that overpowers the bad. It becomes a black hole. The other way that you can deal with it is by irreligion. So you can pretend like it doesn't exist. Write it off as it's just the way it is. We'll ignore the problem. We'll cover it up. You know, this is just part of living life. So you've got to make the best of it. But when you see sin for what it is, it's reality. Its presence is so pervasive. It's so powerful that you can't throw a blanket over it. You can't sweep it under the rug. There's no way to conceal the problem of sin, nor can we create a man-made remedy to solve the problem. It's only when you understand sin from a biblical perspective, the weightiness, the predicament that it puts us in, will you see your need and your desire for forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the act of someone with a stronger power than sin or death working on our behalf to release us. 
See, if, if we try, that's what religion, if we try and beat it ourselves, right, to white knuckle it, we, we, we find ourselves that we're weak, we're incapable of doing this, but, but forgiveness is someone else with a stronger power releasing of that power of sin for us. In this sense, that's the only way sin can be dealt with. Somebody else has to deal with it for us. Now this is why the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, the good news, it's expressed in terms of saving and rescuing language. When, when the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, he's writing to his protege Timothy, and he says, Timothy, this, this saying is, Trustworthy, it's worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of which I'm the foremost. Now if you think about it, that's pretty crazy because the Apostle Paul who is responsible for writing, writing a good chunk of the New Testament is saying that I'm a sinner. Not only am I a sinner, but I am the foremost of sinners. What he's saying here that Jesus stepped in to save me to forgive me. And in Romans chapter three, uh, in verses 24, actually the, the whole passage that we have read is just knockout, so good. Romans chapter three, Paul unpacks the thoroughness of God's forgiveness. Specifically in, in verses 24 and 25, actually in 23 it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, Paul is using some $100 words like justification, redemption, propitiation to unpack the meaning of forgiveness because one of the things that we've got going for us is when we think about forgiveness, sometimes it's just like, it's a false forgiveness, right? You, you, you might say you forgive somebody or somebody might say they forgive you, but really they don't actually forgive you. They just sort of sweep stuff under the rug and, and later on that the same issue boils up and it's not really re, re, uh, resolved. But, but Paul is showing us the thoroughness of God's forgiveness. And if we don't understand the significance of the words of justification and redemption and propitiation, we have a diminished understanding of what forgiveness means, which would explain why we don't respond the way we ought to when we hear the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. See, when Paul says we are justified, this is a legal term. It sets us up in sort of a courtroom. That's kind of the imagery that it, that it invokes here, that, that God is seated on the throne as the just judge. That he's making evaluations based upon the way we lived our life, not only the, the action that we take, but the, the contents of our heart. And as he looks at us, he can see the lists of everything that we've done wrong. I... I I don't know if you've watched the, uh, there's a show, I think it's on NBC, called The Good Place. It kind of, it sort of makes a mockery of the whole afterlife thing, but it's really funny. But one of the things that's kind of helpful is like, 
this idea that there's an, an accountant that's keeping tabs on every single human being throughout time and space, keeping a tally of the good things and the bad things, and if they have enough points, they measure up, and if, you know, whatever, and then they get into the good place. That, that's the whole concept of the thing. God doesn't function as an accountant. He doesn't need to stand by and keep a tally because God has the ability to just look in at our hearts and see what's going on. And when God sits as the judge and looks in, he sees the mountain of debt that we've accrued against him because that's the way that sin is. And even in the Lord's Prayer, when we talk about forgive us our debts as we forgive others, this idea of sin being a debt against God. Every sin, whether you sin against your spouse or your kid or your coworker or whatever, is first and foremost a sin against God. That's what David shows us in Psalm 51. When he had an affair with Bathsheba and he realizes the gravity of his sin and his realization is against you and you alone, oh God, have I sinned. Now the reality is he did sin against Bathsheba. He did sin against Bathsheba's husband but his sin was first and foremost against God and that's the way all of our sin is so we're racking up debt against God. We're going in the red. But when we So if we were to stand before God as a judge on our own, the verdict would be guilty. You're guilty. You sinned. Move on to your punishment. But what Paul is saying here is is that being justified, it means that our debt has been paid by Jesus himself. It's a debt that we could not pay off on our own, not by our good works, not not by penance, that Jesus had to pay off our debt himself by shedding his own blood. Now, the thing that made Jesus' blood uh, creditable, that, that was worthy of being applied to our statement and balance, was that Jesus lived the perfect life that we were meant to live. That Jesus navigated the complexities of life without once violating any one of those. That means that Jesus always revered God for who he was. That Jesus always acknowledged the power of God. That Jesus always embraced and celebrated the presence of God. That there was not one moment in time where Jesus was out of line with the way that God created him to live. And because he lived this perfect life, he can pay the price for our sins. His blood was shed instead of ours and his blood washes us away. He exchanged our debt, he takes that from us, and he credits us his assets. So not only are we pardoned of our debt, but we are also credited with his righteousness. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as morally neutral, he actually says, no, 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 you are justified. You are proved, you're vindicated. That you and I are justified before God, we are declared righteous. So it's in this sense that sin is removed from us. Jesus, Second Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in that we are justified. Now the other part is in redemption. Now this word might be a little bit more familiar, but actually when you think of the way that it was used in the first century, the, the, the word redemption was used in the context uh, of slavery, um, or indentured servitude, which was pretty commonplace. Um, not the same kind of slavery that we have within our American history, but a different kind of, of slavery of working for someone and being indebted and working for that person for seven years, if not your entire lifetime. So when this language of redemption is used, it, it's, it's 
used in the context of buying a slave out from his master. In sin, as we've sinned, as sinners, we are under the power of sin. Sin has us under his thumb. And what Jesus did, he stepped in and he purchased us. He he freed us from the power of sin by his own blood. Jesus is the one who breaks the chains of slavery to sin. He frees us, he liberates us from sin so that the power of sin no longer controls us. See, this is represented in, in 2 Corinthians 5 where the apostle Paul says, it's no longer the power of sin that drives us. It's no longer sin that pushes us to do life the way that it wants us to do it. Now it is the love of Christ that compels us. And so we have redemption. We've been bought out from the power of sin and now we have a new master in Jesus that teaches us how to live within his love. Now the third piece is propitiation, which I'm assuming most of us are like, what? Uh, Because it's a big word. It doesn't get used a lot. But, But here's what propitiation means. While sin makes us enemies of God, it makes us hostile towards God, it makes us hate God, there is this enmity between God and man, but because the forgiveness that God offers us is so thorough, God is not hostile towards us, nor us to him, but God is pleased with us because the work of Christ has been credited to us. It's ours forever, and now we forever have found God's favor. This means that God is satisfied with us forever. For those who are in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. And so we feel like, a lot of times, I feel like if we're living in sin, we have this mentality that God is just really displeased with me. That he's upset with me, and he's gonna bring his punishment to show me how frustrated he is with me and and just, if we have this mentality, it just hardens our heart. We aren't able to see this as actually God's loving discipline meant to bring us out from death into life. But when we understand propitiation, we understand that, that God is happy with us in Christ. And when you unpack these three things, justification and redemption and propitiation, we see that our deepest need is met. Now, you might be wondering, like, that doesn't seem like my deepest need right now. Like, I've got a mortgage payment that's due here, and I don't know where the money's gonna come from. I gotta pay a hospital bill. I've got this relationship that's not, my marriage has fallen apart. I got some, it seems like I've got more pressing needs in my life. And when Jesus was doing his ministry, he came across a paralytic man. And Jesus came to him, and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was addressing the deepest need that this man has. And now, how can that be if this man's here laying on a mat, he can't move any of his body, body parts? How is that his deepest need? Well, Jesus is addressing this. It's the deepest need that we have as a humanity is to be reconciled to God. It's to, to go back to living life the way that we were designed to live because if we don't, life is gonna continue to fall apart. See, forgiveness means that punishment has been dealt with. That Jesus went to the cross so we wouldn't have to take the punishment for sin. 
Forgiveness means that the power of sin is weakened in our life. See, the more we interact with God's forgiveness, the, the more we see God's grace towards us, the more we see what he's really like and live within a real reality, the more sin loses its power, the less enticing it becomes, the more we can experience victory over sin. And the more we can go through life knowing that God is forever pleased with us. This, is, this gets to the core heart issues that we all have. And as it gets to the core issues, as we give ourselves and, and remember the forgiveness of sins day in and day out and see how the magnitude of our sins and the magnitude and how much more God's grace is, it roots sin out of us, making us want to live as the love of Christ compels us to live righteously to no longer give ourselves to the way of the flesh. Now it's in this act of dealing with our sin in the person and work of Christ that, that God's holiness isn't compromised. I said at the beginning that God cannot tolerate sin. In his holiness, sin cannot stand a chance. It'll get burned up. It says God is a consuming fire. And so you'd think that if God is forgiving sinners of their sin, it it seems like he's compromising his character, but when we see what he's done in in Christ, that Christ took the punishment, that God is both just, that his holiness is preserved, he doesn't compromise himself. He is both just and the justifier, he's the one who sent Christ to deal with his sin. He's the one who dealt with sin once and for all in our place without compromising his holiness. And so here we can see the goodness of God. He didn't have to do that. But out of his love for us, he, he did. Now the question is, how do we get it? How, how do I gain forgiveness? And what verse 24 and 25 tells us, if you look at it again, all have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, here's how, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Forgiveness is a gift received by faith. The work of forgiveness is already done. Jesus already went to the cross, paid the price. He freed us from sin. Now he turned the eternal frown of God that rested upon us as we were in a fallen, sinful state. He turned it into God's eternal smile for us. And this is a gift that is available to you right now, that there's no sin that you've committed, past, present, or future, that is beyond God's gift of mercy in Jesus Christ. Now now you can choose to keep living life in sin. You can keep doubling down on sin and saying, you know, this feels good, and the more you do it, the more your heart becomes hardened until the point that you come to the point, you see it in the story of of the Israelites where their heart becomes so hard, the only way for God to get through to them is to crush them, for their heart to be broken. You can do that. That's foolish. That's a terrible way to live. The full life is calling you, God is calling you to live in his mercy, 
to lay hold of his forgiveness and the only prerequisite there is to, to, to lay hold of God's forgiveness is to admit your need. I have to be able to say, I'm a sinner and it's a big problem. It runs deep. John 1, 1 John chapter 1 tells us that if we confess, confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's available to you. And the second question is like, how do I know that I've, how do I know that I've been forgiven? Because I might like, in a sense, I might confess my sin and admit to it, but like it still feels like sin has really got the reins in my life. How do I know that I'm forgiven? How do I know that the power of sin has been taken up from me? Well, first of all, it's like the work of the Holy Spirit is, is moving to assure us of the reality of this forgiveness. The Spirit is applying the gospel to our hearts every time there's need exposed for it. That's one way, but, but the other way that, that Jesus lays out in, in Matthew chapter six, see, the, the way that you know that you're forgiven is that you have the capacity to forgive other people. Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What Jesus is saying here is that to the ability, to, to, the, to the extent in which you're able to forgive others and how they've sinned against you will reflect the understanding you have of God forgiving you of your own sins. It's what we confess today. That, that we tend to, to, to bundle up and to hold on to the sins of other people and how they've sinned against us. And we try to be the judge. We try to be the jury. We try to make them work off and be, play the religious game to either prove that, they've, that they prove themselves worthy of our forgiveness. But here's the deal, that if you understand the unmerited gift of forgiveness that God has given you, you will in turn give that to other people because it's such a good gift that God has given to you, you want them to experience that themselves. And a little piece, a little piece of that of how they get that taste, a little sliver of that is in the experience of forgiveness from brother to sister, from sister to sister, from brother to brother. That little piece of forgiveness points back at what God has ultimately done for us in Christ. See, as a church, we are a community that is steeped in forgiveness. If we lose this reality, if we lose the reality of God forgiving sinners, we might as well all go home. There's, there's no reason to be here, folks. But if we can remember that we are a sinner, and like Paul said, of which I was the utmost, or am the utmost, and we have this daily encounter with the grace of God that relieves us of the burden and the guilt and the shame and the brokenness of sin that frees us to live into the new identity and the new life, we become an attractive community. See, Jesus assembled his disciples before he was crucified at the Lord's table. He said that, that, that this cup, in this cup is, is my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood was shed not just to forgive you as an individual level, but to forgive us 
to forgive the church, to bring the church together around the table. And the more we understand this in a personal sense of how God forgives me, the more we can relate to one another out of a disposition of forgiveness. So whether there's, there's bitterness or resentment or frustration or a withholding of forgiveness in, in your own heart toward other people, this is your opportunity to repent, to confess your sins, and to know that God is graceful, gracious, that he's faithful and just to forgive us. And in this meal, he is working to cleanse us. To, to, we have been cleansed, but it's also this progressive cleansing where he is working to root out the power of sin in our life. Until one day we can sit at the great feast with, with Jesus and experience life the way it was meant to be. No brokenness, no sin. Life to the fullest. And the more we live in God's grace and interact with this life-altering reality of forgiveness, the smaller our appetite for sin becomes. Let's be hungry for God together. Let's be hungry to see the power of God manifested, to be in his presence, to revere him in his holiness, to worship him in obedience. And as that takes place, God is making us fit for the kingdom of God so that we can dwell with him. Where sinners have been redeemed and forever in God's presence we stand. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we're here. This is why we sing.